we have been preaching through these past seven weeks a Bible prophecy series entitled End Times Super Trends. We've come to the end of that, and so we're going to finish off today. And I want to answer a question maybe that many of you have asked and not got a satisfactory answer on. The question at hand is, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? And I want to use the time today as we finish up this prophetic series to delve into that topic and provide some light from the prophetic word of God. Johann Stoffler was a highly respected scientist and religious figure in 16th century Germany. He was a professor of math and astronomy at the University of Tübingen. And in the year 1499, Stoffler began plotting the movements of the planets and found that 25 years ahead, they would form an alignment within the constellation Pisces. And since Pisces is the sign of the fish, Stoffler concluded that this was a sign of a coming deluge that would inundate the whole earth and that it would culminate in the return of Jesus Christ. And he announced the day, he set a date, the flood would begin on February the 20th, 1524. Now because Mr. Stoffler was so respected, many people in German society took his prediction seriously. And as the predicted catastrophe drew near, pamphlets were distributed among the people, uh, urging them to prepare for the end of the world. Many people in low-lying areas sold their homes and they moved to the high hills. Germans began building boats and stocking them with provisions. Among the boat builders in Germany was a very rich man named Count von Eigelheim. He constructed, listen to this, a three-story ark large enough for his extended family. Before the sunrise on the predicted day, Eigelheim and his entourage entered the ark. Soon a great crowd gathered outside. It was composed mostly, witnesses say, of curiosity seekers and flood skeptics who had gathered to mock and jeer. But the mood quickly changed to sudden panic when storm clouds rolled in and rain started to fall. The mob, we are told, surged forward. Several people were trampled to death in the panic. A few were able to break down the door of the ark, and they drugged the count out and stoned him to death. About an hour later, after the bedlam died down, the shower ended, the day passed in history, no flood, and no second coming of Jesus. Now that may be one of the more bizarre stories that you've heard recently, but history is replete with examples of doomsday prophets and date setters who have come along and tried to decipher when Christ would return. More recently, in 1988, there was a NASA rocket engineer named Edgar C. Winesett. He wrote a little book that sold millions, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, when his prediction proved wrong, Weinzett did the next logical thing. He doubled down, and the following year he wrote another book. It didn't sell as well. The title was 89 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1989. And then many of you probably remember in 2011, Harold Camping, a well-known radio preacher, he announced that the rapture and the end of the world would occur on May the 21st, 2011. He did radio spots, commercials, 
and did billboards to get the word out. His organization, Family Radio International, spent a fortune on advertising the end of the world. Of course, you know what happened. May 21st, 2011 came and went with a yawn, and the humiliated prophet had to release a public statement. Here's what he said. He said, quote, We realize that many people are hoping that they would know the day of Christ's return. But we humbly acknowledge we were wrong about the timing, and we have no evidence pointing to another date toward the end of the world. There was an online article that came out soon after that reported that after those false predictions came out, many of Camping's followers were, quote, crestfallen, listen to this, particularly those who had quit their jobs and donated their retirement or college savings funds to help get the word out. Unbelievable. I like what Bible prophecy scholar Mark Hitchcock wrote in one of his books. He said this, History is strewn with the bleached bones of prophecies and predictions that have failed the test of time. So when it comes to foretelling the future, man can't see much further than the end of his nose. He's not very good at it. Now these anecdotes through history illustrate not only the folly of date setting, but also the importance of knowing your Bible, right? Couldn't these people have saved themselves a lot of embarrassment if they just would have read ahead in their New Testament? Because when you go to that prophetic sermon, Matthew 24 and verse 36, Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, all those stories raise an interesting question at hand. And the question is this, why exactly hasn't Jesus returned? I mean, it's been almost 2,000 years since he left this earth. And if you read history, every generation thinks that they are the last generation, the one on the earth who will see the return of Christ. And yet, here we are today, in 2021, we're still waiting, still watching, and still wondering. Now, in this message, I want to offer a few reasons why I believe from Scripture Christ has seemingly delayed His return. And then I want to offer to you some practical applications for what this might mean in our lives. First off, let's begin. I want to give you the reasons. The reasons, number one, write this down, the mysterious plan of God. That's, that's the first reason why I believe that Christ hasn't returned yet, the mysterious plan of God. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, you can turn your eyes to the screen. We'll have that scripture up there. Moments before Jesus ascended back to heaven, remember the disciples had gathered there at the Mount of Olives to see him off, and they wondered if the time had finally come for him to establish his kingdom on the earth. And in Acts 1, they ask a question, and look at how Jesus answers it, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this, this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus explained to his men that the mysterious plan of God was unfolding right before them. Now notice Jesus did not answer their question directly, but he did give them some details. 
before his kingdom would be set up on the earth, he said, look, there's going to be an undisclosed period of time. It's known as the church age. It's the age in which we are currently living. And the church, remember, was a mystery in the sense that none of the Old Testament prophets got revelation on the church. And so if you can imagine uh, two mountain peaks, one mountain peak, the first coming of Christ, the other mountain peak, the second coming of Christ, and in between those peaks they have a valley, which is the church age. And the Old Testament prophets saw the first coming of Christ, they saw the second coming of Christ, but they did not see the valley in between, which is the church age, and which the rest of the book of Acts discloses to us how the church age was born. So what Jesus told the disciples is, look, this isn't the time right now. Well, here's what I want you to do. Go to Jerusalem and begin to pray. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and you're going to be empowered to be my witnesses to go all across the globe and take this glorious gospel from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what I call the mysterious plan of God. Jesus did not directly answer their question. And likewise, we may want to go to the Scriptures and see if we can discern a date or find a time, but God in His wisdom has decided that that information is not in our best interest to know. Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Let me tell you something. I've spent my life so far studying that book, trying to understand it, to grapple with the truth, trying to be a man who rightly divides the word of truth. And I'll tell you what, I've got enough trouble just trying to handle the things that I do understand. Amen? There's a lot in there that I don't understand, a lot of answers that I hope God will answer one day in eternity. I wish that I could tell you I knew the day or the hour, but friend, we have to chalk it up to the mysterious plan of God. We have to live by faith. We have to trust in His Word. Hey, He's not made a mistake. My God doesn't say oops. He keeps all His promises. His Word is settled in heaven. It's inerrant, inspired, infallible, and it's got enough truth there to tell me how to live my life in a godly way, to teach me how to repent and how to have faith and how to give generously and how to have a Christ-like attitude. And I've got my hands full with that right there, much less trying to discern the jots and the tittles in Scripture to figure out when Christ is coming back. God, listen to this, God has given us enough prophetic truth such that we are not totally ignorant of the future, and yet at the same time He has withheld enough of the secret things so that we still have to live by faith in this present hour. I've got enough truth in First and Second Thessalonians, in Matthew 24 and 25 in the book of Revelation and some of the other verses scattered out throughout the New Testament that tell us about the return of Christ, I've got enough information there to know that God is a great promise maker and a great promise keeper. And if He says He's coming back, He hadn't given me the day or the hour, I know He's going to fulfill that word. Amen? Kind of reminds me of uh, the birth of our children. You know, even though we have this modern ultrasound technology most doctors even with all of that the ability to peer inside the secret chamber of the mother's womb that most precious place where lives are knit together where soul is enjoined with body even though we have all of that great technology today most doctors can't give you the day that that baby will be born they can give you a window 
They can let the woman know how far along she is. They can say, well, you're uh, this many months along and you can expect a due date between this date and that date. Now, Caitlin can better attest to this, but I think all of our children were fashionably late. None of them came on the day that they were supposed to arrive or the, even in that window. I think Daniel was uh, holding out. He was the latest of the late. Uh, and, of course, uh, that made life a little bit difficult for uh, the mama. And also, I can remember taking many trips out to the store to get watermelon and fruit. She was on this watermelon kick with the kids. And uh, you try and find watermelon when it's out of season or when try and find fruit when it's not available. But anyway, we got through it, and we're blessed, and we're better for it. But my point is this. That's a faint picture surrounding the Lord's return. We can't know the day or the hour. The Bible's clear on that. But here's what we can do. We can read the Word of God, and we can look out on the horizon of our world and listen closely to the developments in the news, and we can see the signs, and we can experience the birth pains and understand, hey, we're getting pretty close. I think the mysterious plan of God is working behind the scenes in a way that maybe I don't have the full, full picture, and maybe I don't understand, but I know enough of my Bible to know that things are shaping up just the way God's Word said that they would as we draw near to the return of Christ you know if Jesus did reveal the day and the hour of his coming I know how human nature is some folk will procrastinate put off coming to the Lord some people would live in sin right to the very last day and then think they could repent and get into heaven with the smell of smoke on their clothes C.S. Lewis has wrote this though about it he said quote note that because we cannot precisely predict the moment of Christ's return, we must be ready at all moments. The schoolboy does not know which part of his lesson he will be made to translate. That is why he must be prepared to translate any passage in the assignment. The sentry does not know at what time the enemy will attack or an officer will inspect his post, and that is why he must keep awake all the time. The return of Christ is wholly unpredictable. You could not guess it, and if you could... One chief purpose for which it was foretold would be frustrated. And God's purposes, he said, are not so easily frustrated as that. The mysterious plan of God. Secondly, I want you to see this under our reasons. I want you to see the meticulous preparation of God. The meticulous preparation of God. Now we'll go to Matthew 24 and verse 6 for this. Remember, that's the prophetic message where Jesus gives that panorama of prophecy in the Olivet Discourse. And in the first part of that message, he gives us a list of signs that will signal the season of his return. He talks in there about a convergence, if you will, of spiritual counterfeits, national conflicts, natural calamities, social cruelties. We went over all that in one of the previous messages. But in verse 6 of Matthew 24, notice the statement that he gives. It's very important. He says at the end of that list, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. Or your translation may say, For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Jesus told us what signs to look for. He says when you see these things developing in the culture of the world, be on guard. The return is near. But then he says, don't panic when you see these things happening. Don't lose your mind. Don't be discouraged. Uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, don't get into the headline hysteria. But he said, look, all these things must happen. It's necessary for God's will to be accomplished. 
Now, friend, as best as I can understand from Scripture, the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And the rapture has no signs attached to it, meaning that there's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in order for the church to be removed from the earth. Hallelujah. However, that is not the case with the second coming, which happens seven years later at the end of the tribulation. And according to the prophets, especially Revelation and Daniel, they tell us that there's a whole set of circumstances that has to be set up before Christ returns. In other words, there's got to be global government on the earth. The Antichrist has to be revealed. The Jewish temple has to be rebuilt. There has to be a state of apostasy across uh, the spiritual climate of the world. There, ha- there must be something in the form of a cashless society. We can see all of these things beginning to form right now. Most importantly, within the hearts of people, there must be a hopelessness and there must be a cry for somebody to come along, a world leader, a Mr. Fix-It, who will promise safety and security and provision in exchange for people's freedom and their bowing their knee. I'm talking of the Antichrist. So what I'm trying to get you to see here is that God is setting things up. He is preparing the world scene. Things have to be moved around. Pieces have to be put into place. Props have to be uh, put up and people have to be moved to where they are. And I suggest one reason why the Lord hasn't returned yet is because these world conditions are still being prepared. And God right now is, is patiently and providentially moving all the pieces and all the players to where they need to be. Think of this in terms of the first coming of Christ. The Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 concerning the birth of Christ, it says that in the fullness of time He came. Now friend, what happened in that fullness of time between Malachi and between Matthew? That's so-called 400 years of silence where prophet did not speak and God's voice was not heard. Well, there was a, a, a Roman government, an empire that was set up across the whole world to create a, a, a series of years that were peaceful. Roads that were built so that when the fullness of time came along, there would be ease of travel, that the gospel message could take advantage of those world conditions and the gospel would be able to move out and around the world just as it was predicted to do. The world was waiting for it to be unified by a common language, Koine Greek, so that the New Testament could be written and so the preaching of the gospel could be heard among the ears of many. There was also a messianic expectation among the hearts of God's people that, that one day uh, Messiah was going to come and He was going to bring salvation to His people. And don't forget that in Luke chapter 2, that God can do this, by the way. He taps the most a powerful person on the face of the earth, the Roman emperor, on the shoulder and says, Hey, I got a little errand for you to do, Roman emperor. Why don't you have a census? That way it will move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because I've got a prophecy in Micah 5.2 that I need fulfilled. And you're going to put the whole world in motion so that I can get that little peasant couple where they need to be for the birth of the Son to fulfill every jot and tittle of Scripture. That's how precise the preparation of my God is. And friend, think of that in terms of the second coming. Just as everything was set up providentially, secretly, behind the scenes, the world didn't know it, but it was being prepared for the birth of the king, the world is being prepared in that same way for the final act of God's divine drama to begin. Again, let me 
point you to Mark Hitchcock. He has a great analogy to help us understand. He says, imagine you're at a play. You've taken your seat in the audience. And before the curtain goes up on Act 1, you can hear the sounds behind the curtain. The stage is being set for the beginning of the play. The props are being put into place. The actors are taking their positions. The stage is being set. Not the play itself, but the necessary preparation for it. The work being done, he said, behind the scenes creates anticipation for the rising of the curtain. He said in the same way God is preparing the world stage for his drama, (laughs) his drama of the ages. He said uh, God is allowing world events to take place and players to assume their roles before the drama begins. Before the curtain goes up, the church will rise in the air to meet the Lord in the rapture. Somebody in the house of God, help me preach this this morning and say amen. So while the earth is being prepared for the Antichrist, listen folk, heaven is being prepared by Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Oh, there'll be many mansions, many rooms in my Father's house. If it was not so, don't you know I would have told you? But he said, I'm going to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. Friend, if I read my Bible correctly, it tells me that in Genesis 1, it took God only six days to create the universe, to dot the stars in the sky, to keep the world turning, to create all of the flora and fauna and animals that we see on the earth. It took God six days to do all that. And Jesus has been there for some 2,000 years in glory preparing a place for you and me. Friend, if it looks that good on this side of the curse of sin, imagine what it's going to be one day when the trumpet sounds and the cry is given and Christ says, come up hither and we go to meet him in the air and we see him face to face. Friend, if it looks good down here, sounds good down here, imagine what it'll be like when we are truly known and we see him face to face. But you see, the meticulous preparation of God. And I would add that from heaven's balcony, we got the best seat in the house to watch that divine drama play out on the earth. But you got to RSVP, don't you? You got to make your reservation known by having Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by repenting of your sin, coming to his cross. And trust in Him as your atoning Savior. Well, the meticulous preparation of God and the mysterious plan of God. There's one more reason I want to give you today. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? And that's number three, the merciful patience of God. The merciful patience of God. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, look at this scripture. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, watch this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, another reason why Christ hasn't returned yet is because the Bible says the Lord desires that all who will be saved are saved. Peter tells us here, think of God's mercy pushing back Christ's return and to the last possible moment so that the maximum number of people can repent and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think the, the heart of God is that He wants as many people as possible to repent and come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. God wants a heaven to be full of redeemed people who were pulled from the pit of sin, 
who has cleaned up and cleaned off the, the dirtiness of sin. God wants a heaven that's full of trophies of grace. And so he's seemingly pushed back the return of Christ so that as many who, who will be saved will be saved. Now you and I, we kind of get selfish, don't we? We long for the return of Christ, don't we? I do every day. I think about it like this, you know, I've got problems. And if Jesus Christ would come back on my time schedule, I think about every problem that I have would be fixed, don't you? <laughs> I mean, those bills you got to pay, the problems you're having with your kids, your boss that you don't get along with, that sickness in your body, uh, those minor inconveniences and, and problems in life, not trying to diminish any of that, but I think when Jesus comes, all that's going to be eliminated, amen? And we could, we could say in our frustration, Lord, why don't you just come today <laughs> and relieve me of the frustration of all the problems of making a living here on the earth. But you know what? I sure am glad that Jesus Christ didn't come back before 1991. I sure am glad that Jesus Christ didn't come back before 1976 when my daddy got saved. I sure am glad that Jesus Christ didn't come back in the last 50 years because a lot of you wouldn't have known him as you do today through personal Lord and Savior. You see, because if he would have come sooner, you wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond and be born again and be indwelt by his Holy Spirit and we would have faced God's terrible judgment and wrath. So, friend, listen to this. Each day that the Lord delays is an extra day of mercy and grace for the gospel to be preached, for one more to be saved, one more to be plucked out of the pit, one more to be brought out of the fire. And I'm thankful that there is one more day of mercy and grace. I'm thankful that there, that one on my prayer list has got another day to seek Him while He may be found. I'm thankful that He's delayed a little bit so that I might preach this gospel so that either somebody in here or somebody online might hear of the glorious Savior that we have and say, you know what? That preacher is right. I don't understand it all, but I've put it off long enough. The day of salvation is mine. And they may repent and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that delay because that's another opportunity for a whosoever will. Amen. Now let me point something out to you. There's an interesting verse in Romans 11.25 that says this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Watch this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice that little phrase there at the end of Romans 11.25. That verse tells us something important. It says that in this age, the church age, that the Jewish people, their hearts have been hardened with unbelief. If you talk to the average Jewish person today, they don't recognize Christ as their Messiah. They don't see Him as the Savior of the world and the Son of God. There are Messianic Jews, don't get me wrong, who have trusted in Christ as Savior. They've connected the Old Testament with the New Testament. But for the most part, your card-carrying, garden-variety Jew doesn't recognize Christ. But God says something in Romans 11 that's interesting. God is working through the nations of the world to build something called the church, which in this text he calls the fullness of the Gentiles. Friend, there's coming a day when that last one who will believe will repent of their sin, trust in Jesus Christ and Savior, as Savior. None of us know when that day is. Only 
God in heaven knows. But friend, when that last one professes faith in Christ, that's going to complete the bride. And when that last one comes into the kingdom, I think that the Father is going to turn to the Son and say, Your bride is ready. Why don't you go and get her now, Son? And when that last soul is saved, Friend, uh, Katie, bar the door. All bets are off. The church is up, up, and away with a one-way ticket. The rapture begins, and the end times as professed in the, these scriptures begins. Oh, friend, that excites me. That excites me to no end because you don't know when it could happen. You don't know who that last one could be. It might happen here at Little Liberty Baptist Church. One morning when you're not expecting it, when you didn't even look for the blessing of God to come, somebody might secretly repent of their sin in the heart, sitting there in the pew. They may not even come forward. It could happen in a mud hut in Africa. It could happen in a home church in China. We don't know when. We don't know where. But if I get to be the one that preaches the last sermon that's going to bring the last one to faith, praise God. That's the mysterious plan of God and the merciful plan of God. You don't know when it might happen or who it might happen to. It could be somebody you've been praying for. It could be somebody in your family. It could be somebody you've been burdened for. They might be the last one that will complete the church and trigger the rapture. Friend, if that don't charge your batteries today, I don't know what will. My goodness. On September 11, 2001, there was a lady named Janelle Guzman McMillan. She was working in her office in the World Trade Center when she heard that terrible explosion. As she began to race down the stairs, the building collapsed around her. 27 hours later, she was the final person to be rescued from the rubble of Ground Zero. Imagine that. The last one saved. From the smoldering ruins of the Twin Towers on 9-11. She was found, this article said, by a fireman and his specially trained search and rescue dog. They had thought about calling off the rescue because nobody could have survived for that long. But the article said that she was eternally grateful to God that the search wasn't called off earlier and it was. Do you see where I'm going with that church? I believe that's the heart of my Savior who according to Luke 19.10 He said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Aren't you glad He didn't call off the search for you? Aren't you glad He didn't come back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago so that you might know Him, so that you might be washed in His blood and brought into the kingdom and given eyes to see. Oh, praise God for His mercy today. Friend, there's still a rescue mission in operation today. It's Operation Reconciliation. You can be made right with the Father through the Son. He's looking for boys and girls, men and women, drunks and druggies. Hey, He's searching for a whosoever will. And as that church is completed... Friend, know that you've got a part to play in it. Don't think it's just the preacher's responsibility or the soloist's job. You've got a part in the rescue mission too to rescue the perishing. Oh my goodness, those are the reasons. Ain't God good? And I want you to see number two, the response. 
You say, okay, preacher, what are we supposed to do with all that? We know about the meticulous planning, the merciful patience of God and His mysterious plan, how we respond to all that. Let me close by giving you three applications. First is this, don't be discouraged. If Jesus tarries another decade, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, don't be discouraged. Peter said, listen to what he wrote, one of the last day signs would be skeptics who would mock the idea of the Lord's return. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Brother Carl and I were talking just before the service, you know, to believe in the return of Christ, and especially a pre-tribulation rapture, brands you in even the church as a weirdo, in a minority. Because if you study most of the church, in Catholicism and in reform circles, they don't believe in the rapture. They don't believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ the way that I believe the Bible presents it. So if you expect that any moment return of Christ, man, you're looked upon as a weirdo. And I'm here today to tell you that's a, a badge and a label that I'll wear with honor because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, Peter writes here, he says, look, you know, in the last days, there's going to be a lot of scoffers. Going to be a lot of skeptics. Going to be a lot of people who, when you mention the return of Christ to them, they're going to mock you. Don't we see this tone in our culture today? I was driving around downtown Asheville just the other day, and the brazen, the boldness of some people, I saw a bumper sticker on the back of an old beat-up truck, and you know what it said? Jesus is coming, hide the porn. That was the message of all things to put on your vehicle. But they're mocking the idea of Christ coming back as if it's not really going to happen. But there was an atheist a few years ago named Richard Dawkins. He purchased billboards in the United States and the United Kingdom to have this message put on for the public to see. He said this, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Boy, that sounds like the words of a fool to me. Because if this guy's wrong, he's going to rue the day that he ever paid to have that put out. Now, keep in mind, friend, a skeptic's not looking for God for the same reason that a thief isn't looking for a police officer. And we could read this stuff and, and hear the slams and the mocks of people and become offended. But, friend, I, every time I see it, I kind of chuckle inside because, hey, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 said that this very thing would happen. So the atheist doesn't know it. The mocker doesn't realize it. The skeptic hasn't brought it to his mind yet. But when he's mocking the return of Christ, he's actually fulfilling the word of God. And so, friend, we need to take an understanding of that and not be discouraged. Because, let me clue you in on something. Everybody thought Noah was the village idiot until the day that the flood came. Everybody thought Lot was a peculiar oddball until the fire started to fall on Sodom. They made Daniel the butt of jokes in Babylon until the night when God's hand appeared and started writing 
on the wall. And friend, they're going to call you names. They're going to label you. They're going to say you're some Bible thumper, some weirdo. Why do you go to that weird church down there? But I'm telling you what, I'll take it for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because one day all that joking, all that foolishness is going to turn to weeping and moaning because the Bible says when he comes on the clouds, Revelation 1-7, that they will mourn at the sight of him who they have pierced. Don't be discouraged. And then don't be deceived. You see, God's delay doesn't mean God's denial. Don't be deceived. Luke 12, 40. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The worst mistake that somebody could make is to think, well, I've got plenty of time. I've got plenty of time to make a decision for the Lord. Friend, I've seen him shake my hand and say, good message, preacher, and I'll see you next Sunday and die within that week and have to do a funeral. That's how uncertain life is so don't think that you're going to die happily and peaceful in your bed at 90 years old don't think well I can put it off this stuff about Jesus coming back I don't know about don't think I can put that off because just as you don't know the hour of your death you don't know the hour of his coming and one of Satan's greatest lies that he tells people you know the greatest tool in his arsenal is this it's one word Tomorrow, you can live for Jesus. Tomorrow, you can get serious about the Bible. Tomorrow, you can go to church. Tomorrow, he always is looking for that deception. Don't be deceived. Don't be discouraged. And then lastly, don't be doubting. Oh, don't be doubting, friend. Revelation 22 and verse 12 says says this, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. Now no one with any intellectual credibility will deny that Jesus lived some 2,000 years ago. And when you search the Bible, do you know that there are three times as many prophecies related to his second coming as his first coming? And just as Christ fulfilled all of those prophecies concerning his birth at Christmas, friend, he's going to fulfill all those promises about his second coming at a day in the future. So, friend, listen to me today. He will keep every promise. And isn't that what we're holding on to? We're holding on to the promise of his salvation. We're holding on to the promise of glory one day in heaven. We're holding on to the promise of his return if he sees fit to come back during our lifetimes. And friend, listen to me. Because he is faithful, he will always come through with his promises. Because he is all-knowing, he'll never be caught off guard because he didn't see something coming along the way. Because he is powerful, he will never lack our ability to keep that promise that he's given us and to uphold his word. Because he is just, you can better believe he's going to return and he is holy and he's going to judge sin and evil and he's going to balance the scales of justice. You see, that's who my God is. That's why I don't doubt In 1914, there was a world-famous explorer by the name of Sir Ernest Shackleton. He and 29 intrepid men set sail aboard the Endurance. Their goal was to become the first to conquer the frozen continent of Antarctica. 
During that expedition, Shackleton's crew was trapped in an ice pack and it sank their ship. Here's a picture that they took of the endurance trapped there. His men had to improvise a shelter on the nearby Elephant Island. Meanwhile, Ernest Shackleton had to navigate 800 miles across the Arctic Sea in a tiny lifeboat back to civilization so that he could muster a rescue operation. Imagine doing that. Traveling 800 miles by yourself across the Arctic to go get help. No cell phone, no GPS, no map. (laughs) Finally, after an arduous 105-day journey, Shackleton, faithful to his word, returned to rescue his men on that little island. To his surprise, he found his men waiting, packed and ready to board the ship. He was just in time too. The records say that the camp only had four days of food left for rations. As they were on their way back home to England, he asked his men, how did you stay hopeful during that long period when you hadn't heard from me or you hadn't seen any news of me? The crew told him, well, Captain, we didn't know when you would be back. But every morning, one of the men, Frank Wilde, would roll up his sleeping bag, wake everybody up and say this, Get ready, boys. Today could be the day that the boss comes back. And friend, that's my message to you today as we close. As you roll up this day and look forward to the next one, you can say, Hey, today might be the day that the boss returns. Friend, that's what charges me this morning. That's what gets me up out of bed. That's what gives me joy and hope in the morning. When I set about the day's task, I look at all that's going on in the world. I look at the tasks that lay before me, the mountains that have to be moved, and I say, oh, but you know what? Today might be the day that the boss returns. So if today is that day, friend, live holy. Live for Him. If today's the day that the boss is going to come back, then friend, get right with Him. Don't waste any more time living out in the sin of the world. If today is the day that He might come back, then why don't you take that opportunity and witness one more time to that little person at the grocery store, to that one that comes across your mind. If today is the day, hey, let's get excited and let's go to church. Because when he comes back, I want to be found faithful. And wouldn't it be awesome if he came back in the middle of a church service? Brother Clifford, if he came back now, what a sermon illustration. Only one time I could do it, but I'd give you a high five on the way up and say, I told you so, church. His word is true. Hey, if today's the day, why don't you pray a little bit harder? Why don't you seek him while there's still time? Why don't you give a little bit more? Because this message is urgent. And this gospel is worthy of being preached. Friend, while there is still a little bit more time, and if today is the day, oh, make Him number one in your life. Look back and thank Him. Look ahead and trust Him. Look around and serve Him. And friend, look up and expect Him. (laughs) Look up and expect Him.